Okay, uh, this Sunday we are going to be looking at Palm Sunday. We are in Matthew chapter 21. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 21, that's where we'll begin this morning. But I'm going to start with a story. If you, if you run into my parents, please don't bring up garage sales. Like they had, they're kind of traumatized. Their last garage sale was over 30 years ago. And there's a reason that that was their, their very last one. My dad was uh, resistant. He didn't want to have another garage sale. My mom is very frugal. And she liked having them because she could make several hundred dollars each time. So she would put in all the work. And she wanted my dad to help in the process. And my dad's digging his heels. No, no, no. Finally, she talked him into it. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll do another garage sale with you. So they put an ad in the paper. You know, garage sale starts 8 a.m. At 6 a.m., they had people knocking on their door. Right, trying to get in, trying to see stuff. They held them off until 8 a.m., started the garage sale, and then people were literally trying to get into their house, right? So maybe there's something you didn't put in the driveway that you'd like to sell. So people are, are you know, pushing in. You know, it's, it's a very, right, it's a very aggressive kind of a culture or moment in, at garage sales. So it's about midway through the morning, and uh, this gentleman came up to my dad, and he said, hey, can you help me put this coffee table uh, in, in my truck? And so my dad grabbed one end, the guy grabbed the other, they loaded it up, put it in his truck, dad drives off, my dad came back, my mom said, uh, did you get the money from him? <laughs> my dad helped him steal it. Right? So, I mean, my dad's face just sunk, he walked in the house, closed the door, never came out, that's the last garage sale. He's like, if you want to have a garage sale, you are on your own. So, it's been 30 years, no more garage sales. And, you know, uh, you may be a garage sale kind of person. I don't know. Maybe that's part of, of your psyche. But what, what, what draws people? What is it about a garage sale? Well, it's, it's that, that hope, that, that vision that you might get a treasure and pay nothing for it, right? They just for, for a tiny amount. And there are stories that confirm this. As a matter of fact, um, it's 2007. I read an article about a couple who went to a garage sale and they found this little bowl, this little uh, ceramic bowl, and they bought it for three dollars. And as they got it home, they thought, you know, this might be valuable. This is it's really pretty. And so they took it to an appraiser, and he said, yeah, actually, this is uh, only one of two known existing Chinese bowls from this particular era and this color. And so they auctioned it off, and they got 2.2 million dollars. Right, they paid three dollars, and right now you're going, okay, I know what I'm doing next Saturday. Right? <laughs> What's the point? The point of the illustration is this: that vase is a lot like Jesus. He's the most valuable treasure that exists, and yet most people would just pass by and ignore him, or would discard him, reject him. In fact, there are billions of people in our world today that some of them, they don't even know anything about Jesus or they know a little bit about Jesus and they have no concern for him whatsoever. Others, they've learned a bit more and they reject him, not as a treasure, but just as as trash. And really, that's what happened during this week 2,000 years ago. Jesus was initially welcomed as a precious treasure for Israel and then uh, sentiment turned against him, and he was rejected. And, and I want us to look for a few moments about, about why that happened, why it, why it happens today, and why we as a church need to genuinely understand how precious Jesus is so we'll proclaim the gospel loudly to those who need to know him. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, and they had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives... 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, a colt and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to, your daughter, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus was initially welcomed. Crowds surrounded him and they embraced him. Why was that? Well, I want to kind of recreate the setting for you a little bit. Remember, Jesus lived in Galilee. He was from Galilee. And most of his ministry and most of his miracles occurred there in the north in Galilee. And so he is joining pilgrims going along the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, remember, it's a shorter route if he cuts straight from Galilee to Jerusalem along along that central ridge route, but that that cuts through Samaria. And Jesus has done it before, but normally Jews don't travel the shorter distance because they don't want to have any interaction with Samaritans. It It would pollute them, particularly when they're going to a feast and a festival. If they had physical contact with the Samaritans, it would defile them and they couldn't worship. So they took the normal route from Galilee to Jerusalem. They went down to the Jordan River, they walked south, then they cut up through Jericho along that route that was very steep and dangerous that's the setting for the Good Samaritan. Right? And they, he, they went up, and as, as they're traveling, and Jesus is traveling with them, there are more and more and more people from Galilee joining, and there's a huge crowd, and Jesus goes up with them, and then he stops in Bethany, and he has a meal with some of his friends, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and it's in that moment that Mary anoints Jesus' head and feet. And then the next morning, Jesus gets up and he is about to go into Jerusalem. So he climbs up the road into uh, what's known as the Mount of Olives, which is really just a, a ridge that runs north and south just outside of Jerusalem. So he crests that ridge down below him is the Kidron Valley. And he can see, literally just see a short distance off, there is the Temple Mount. And as he does so, he mounts onto a donkey. And all of the crowds around him begin to shout. And they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And these pilgrims that are with Jesus are shouting out and singing a song that they have sung their entire lives. Right? This is from Psalm 118. And Psalms 113 to 118 are known as the Hallel songs. That is, the songs that were sung on pilgrimage. So Psalms is their hymn book, but these particular songs are the ones that they've sung all along the way as they've been walking. They've sung it every year of their life that they've gone on pilgrimage to the Passover feast or the Feast of Booths or any of the other feasts. So they know it well. And originally, it was a blessing on the pilgrim. Right. So blessed is the pilgrim who comes in the name of the Lord. But then it began to be transferred in their struggles to a Messiah. Hosanna, that is, Lord, save us. Lord, save us now. And they cried out to the son of David, that is, the heir of David, the Messiah, 
king. Blessed is he, that one pilgrim who can lead us in triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and establish God's kingdom for us. And so they're all gathering around and it says they climb up into the trees and as our kids did earlier, they're waving palm branches. The palm branches were not associated with the feast. They were a symbol of nationalism, right? This is the flag. This is the flag of Israel in a sense. You'll even see it on some of the coins that they minted. What they're saying is down with Rome, right? May Rome be destroyed and may Israel rise up. Blessed is our king who will save us. Lord, save us now. And they're waving the flag. It's, it's a sign of rebellion and resistance against Rome and anticipation and hope that God will send his Messiah, right? That's what they're hoping for. That's what they are anticipating. I'm going to read to you from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, the Lord speaks, and he says this, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and he will be their shepherd. Remember, Ezekiel's writing to a group of people who are uh, in exile or going into exile, and they're suffering, and they need hope, and God says, I'm going to send one of David's heirs again, and he will rule and reign for you. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase. They will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them, they will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid any longer. I will establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. And the people are saying, Lord, bring that now. Bring us freedom from our oppressors. Let us no longer be enslaved. May the land be fruitful. The beasts are removed. We're safe. We're secure. We are, we're, we're sovereign. We are living under your authority. Lord, bring your kingdom now, right? So that's what the people are hoping for. That's what they're singing about. And the question is simply this. Uh, were they wrong? R- remember, the, the last king they had was King Herod, who was not actually even Jewish. He was an Idumean. And he was an evil man. And when he died, he parceled up his kingdom among his sons. But Judea, in particular, that province was actually under direct Roman rule. It had a governor. His name was Pilate. And he was a, he was a cruel man. He was a vicious man. And so the people are looking at their circumstances and they're crying out, Lord, save us. You've promised, right? Were they wrong? Well, I mean, clearly, uh, it seems that Jesus accepts their praise. Look at chapter 21. Uh, verse 14, Matthew 21, verse 14, says the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, again, Hosanna, Lord, save us now, Lord, son of David, the heir of David, they became indignant and said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I do. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? In other words, Jesus welcomes their praise. He welcomes their identification of him 
with these prophecies and promises that were made in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and also in particular in the book of Zechariah, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? So they weren't incorrect, but their understanding was incomplete. And, you know, we look back and we think, well, how did they miss it? But there, there are only whispers, there are only hints in the Old Testament that God's king would first be rejected and later be accepted. All right, you've got a little, a little hint of it in Isaiah, maybe a little hint of it in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. We look back and we have much better vision because we've seen the story unfold, but they didn't see it. All that they understood was that their king would come and he would create uh, political freedom and economic freedom and social freedom and spiritual freedom, and that's what they're longing for. So they weren't incorrect, but their understanding was incomplete. And so what happens in the course of this time is that uh, the people who've welcomed him slowly are turned and they reject him. And so this, this triumphal entry turns into a, really a tragic week of rejection for Jesus. So uh, again, but I think something that we miss as we're reading through this narrative is there are different groups of people who are responding differently to Jesus throughout the week. This group that's come with Jesus, remember they're Galileans. Right? They're not from Jerusalem. And, and if you can uh, imagine the social structure here in Israel, Galilee is like the Wild West, Right? Galilee is uh, really is more like Texas. Okay, so you've got all your you're really fiercely independent people. All the independence movements, the insurrection against Rome, all those things started in Galilee, right? The Galileans were the ones who had they had a bumper sticker across their donkey that says "Secede." Right? That's that's what Galileans are like, right? So they're the ones coming in. They're going, "All right, now we've got a king," and it wasn't the first potential king they had risen up and embraced. There was another who was in prison right then. His name was. Barabbas, right? They had followed other insurrectionists, and now they're like, okay, now we've got a king. It's Jesus. These are the Galileans. So when they arrive with this triumphal procession into Jerusalem, what happens? Look at chapter 21, verse 10. It says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all of the city was stirred, and they were saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They're saying, this is awesome. He's one of us. And those in Jerusalem who represent the establishment were saying, Galilee? That's, that's the backwoods. They even speak with a funny accent. right? You can tell if you're, somebody's from Galilee. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth? Are you serious? It's like, he's from Snook. Right? He, he's a... <laughs> Can any good thing come out of Snook? Well, yeah, we have sausage, but what else? I mean, it's, he's from Nazareth, and not only that, he's, he's a prophet. Well, what do prophets represent to the establishment? They undermine the establishment. They destroy the establishment. This is a prophet from Nazareth, from Galilee. The people in Jerusalem are the establishment, and they, they are not only resistant, they become a hateful toward Jesus. Why? Well, we're told even by Pilate later on that he knew that the Jews delivered him over because of jealousy. Because they saw the hearts of the people wanting to follow Jesus and not follow them. And I would argue what happens during this triumphal entry and throughout the week is Jesus is intentionally provoking a fight. 
Jesus is intentionally provoking a fight. First, remember, he comes in on a donkey. That wasn't necessary physically. He had already walked 100 miles. Jesus walked his entire life. He wasn't exhausted or worn out. He didn't need to get on a donkey. He could, this is only about another one to two mile journey that he had to have. No, this is an intentional provocation because they can't help but associate what Jesus is doing with this prophecy in Zechariah, which is also prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And as Jacob was dying, he made a prophecy about the, nation, or about the tribe of Judah and that one would come, Shiloh, and he would come. Mounted on a colt, full of a donkey. This, this is an intentional provocation, right? So all the pilgrims are walking. Everybody walks. But then there's Jesus, head and shoulders, above the rest, on a donkey. He's trying to pick a fight. So he goes in, down the Kidron Valley. He comes up into the Temple Mount. And what's the first thing that he does when he gets off of the donkey? Let's read. Chapter 21, verse 12. It says, Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Man, Jesus is just right up in their grill. We're told in one of the other gospel accounts that apparently he just he sits down and he's watching all of this and he just starts weaving a whip. He's just sitting there slowly braiding a whip. And then he stands up and he goes, and then he starts whipping on these animals and the animals scatter and he drops his whip and he throws the tables over and money scatters everywhere. I mean, this is a scene. This is a serious scene that Jesus is making. And the issue is not that it was inappropriate to sell animals in that courtyard because the worshipers needed animals. The deal was that the spiritual leadership had made this bargain, said, you need to, uh, to charge exorbitant prices because we're going to take a cut. And they were gouging the people in the context of their worship. And Jesus says, the point of being here is to worship God, not to make money off of the poor people. And so he scatters their oppressive abuse of the people. And he leaves the temple, comes back the next day, and the spiritual leaders confront him and they say, who do you think you are? (laughs) By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus said, I would love to answer your question. I will answer your question as soon as you answer one of my questions. Deal? Okay. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They go, ah, God, Jesus. (laughs) He's always tricking us. If we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe in it? If we say it's from man, then the people will stone us because they think John's really a prophet. And they said, well, we don't know, Jesus. Well, I'm not going to tell you either. But what I am going to do is I'm going to tell a parable about you, and then I'm going to preach about you. So let's get all the people around you watching me tell this parable about you and preaching about you. There was a, a landowner, and he owned this vineyard, and he, it was a very valuable vineyard, so he rented it out. And then he went away on a long journey, and he sent a servant back to collect some of the proceeds. Because it's his vineyard, and there's rent on the vineyard, but they stoned his servant. So that's crazy. And so he sent another servant and they, they beat him. Then he sent another servant and they killed him. And he thought, well, I guess I will have to send my son because they'll certainly respect my son. But then when they saw the son coming, they said, well, this is the heir. If we kill him, then the vineyard will be ours. So they killed the son. And then he turns to ask the crowd, what do you think the owner of that vineyard is going to do to those renters? They're going to destroy him. And the Pharisees were furious, it says, because he knew, they knew he was talking about them. He said, well, that's not enough. Let me, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. And he preaches a sermon 
Remember, with the spiritual leadership standing right there, chapter 23, verse 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you. That is, judgment is coming upon you. Why? Because you love to stand in the synagogues. You love respectful greetings. You lengthen the tassels on your gowns and your phylacteries. You you just want praise from people, and you are hypocrites. So he says, judgment's coming on you. That's a woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's a, there's a homiletical tool. It's called repetition. So what's the point of the sermon? Woe to you. Right? Jesus is not trying to make friends with them. In fact, if you read all of the gospel accounts... The only time Jesus genuinely gets furious is with religious, spiritual leaders who are hypocritical and self-righteous, and he pronounces condemnation on them. On the other hand, people who are broken, the most deeply broken in society, he sits down, he has meals with them, he touches them, lepers and prostitutes and tax gatherers, and he loves them because they know they're broken and they need him. But on the religious establishment, he just hammers them. He is, Jesus is, is... intentionally picking a fight. And so what happens? They, they reject him. right? They reject him, and they begin to try to turn the sentiment of the people against Jesus. So I'd say first among the leadership there's jealousy, but among the people there becomes disappointment because Jesus doesn't turn out to be what they hoped he would be. When he's confronted and challenged by the spiritual leadership, he condemns them, but then he goes silent. And he allows himself to be captured. He allows himself to be beaten. He allows himself ultimately to be rejected and crucified. And that's not what they wanted in a Messiah. That's not what they expected. It's not what they anticipated. And I would say there's a really good application for us in this. Because so often we we worship or what we call worship. We direct our worship toward God based on what we can get from God. We've been doing, uh, we did that series on prayer. I'm I'm sure a lot of you were here, did the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things we talked about is that there are priorities in this prayer. And it starts with God, with his name, his honor, his glory. And so what I have been trying to do is um, really emphasize that pattern of prayer in my own prayer life, which may may shock you, but I actually try to practice the things that I preach. I really do. So I'm trying to build some new habits in that. And then I noticed for myself um, you know, I'll, I'll start a new habit, then that habit will kind of tail off. It's, it's hard to sustain or build that habit. And so I noticed just this last week, I was spending some time in prayer, and I realized, I just had this moment where I, I realized for the last 10 minutes, basically I've been praying, gimme, 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 in a sense. I mean, I didn't really literally say gimme, gimme, gimme. I'm, I'm, you know, a little smarter than that. But um, I was praying, all of my prayer from the beginning to that point had been what I wanted and what I needed. Right, think about it. When, when you start a new habit in prayer and then it tails off, when do you revive that habit? When you're in crisis and you need something and then you start to learn to pray again, right? We all do that. We come to God to, to get something from him. And the crowds, the, even the Galileans, they, they followed Jesus based upon what they could 
get from him. That was the essence of, of their worship, taking from Jesus. And so they're deeply disappointed. So he turns out to be not what they wanted. But I'd say there's a third and more profound reason. It's this. The tragedy happened because it was the will of God. Right? This was God's plan. In Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, he says this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, they were responsible for rejecting him, but it was the plan of God. That was the plan of God, right? And we have to ask ourselves, on a, on a, in a sense, on a much larger theological level, why, why did God ordain the tragedy? What was God hoping to accomplish in ordaining the tragedy? And I want to give you a few accomplishments of the cross this morning. And if you have a piece of paper, write them down, because in the end I want to encourage you just to meditate upon these this week. So I'm going to give you several accomplishments of the cross. The first is this. The cross exposes the depth of our sin. This is what we will meditate on on Friday. The cross exposes the depth of our sin. Now, I will acknowledge that this is a terribly unpopular word, sin. And so um, we either don't speak of it or we label sin stuff that other people do, right? Not the stuff that I do, but others do. Or we label it with really big things, right? It's murder. It's, uh, it's uh, robbery, right? It's, it's, these, it's these huge things. It's, it's lying, but big lies, not my, my kind of lies. It's just the big ones, right? So we, we either reject the word or we label it in such a way that we escape. But uh, the root of sin is this heart that's committed to self, And so out of that heart, I I speak and I act and I think, but it's really rooted deeply here. So it's things like greed and pride and self-righteousness and anger and bitterness and unwillingness to forgive. Uh, it's, It's laziness. It's disrespect for authority. It's unkindness. Or it's withholding kindness that I could give. In other words, there are sins of commission, things that I do, but sins of omission, things that I should have done and could have done for someone to bless them, but I didn't. It's all of these things. And if we consider that as the list, we go, okay, yeah, I could probably find myself somewhere in that list, right? As Paul says in Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned, we said a few weeks ago, all, all missed the mark. The mark is the glory of God, the perfection of God. They've fallen short. It includes every single one of us. And if we're honest, it, there may be things in our lives, well, I haven't done that but, but why is that? Well, is it, you know, the family, the protection around me? I didn't want those consequences. I, I didn't commit adultery, but did I commit adultery in my heart? I didn't actually take money, but was I greedy for that money? Were the things in my heart that God has somehow protected me from being as evil as I possibly could, but if I let my heart be examined, I'm really deeply broken. I'm really deeply flawed. And all of us fall into that realm. And the cross reveals that to us. John Stott once wrote, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately what sent Christ there was not the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the vacillating cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins. And Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity, and not to feel ashamed of ourselves. Our sin revealed 
in the cross. Second, the cross reveals the extent of God's holiness. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 4, David makes a statement. He says, no sin or no evil can dwell with you. By which he means not that God doesn't, he keeps himself so separate that he doesn't even know sin is happening, right? Or he, he can't, uh, um, you know, really connect with it. It's, no, it's not that. He, he knows all the evil that happens in the world, but he can't be in fellowship or relationship, right? Light and darkness have no relationship. So anything and anyone tainted at all by the smallest amount of sin cannot be in relationship with God until the sin is removed. Because God is absolutely and perfectly and utterly holy in himself. And so, as we'll say in the book of Isaiah very poetically, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isn't that beautiful? In a really tragic way. What he's saying is, our lives, they're like a leaf that the sun has scorched, and it's gotten dry and flaky, and the wind comes... And it, it pushes it away. It's, it's our iniquity that has created separation. It's called death. And we are separated from God or born separated or, in theological terms, dead because of our sin. Because God is absolutely perfect in his holiness. No evil can dwell with him. No unrighteousness can dwell with him. No sin can dwell with him. And so we're in this utterly broken and separated state. Uh, but there's hope. The cross also reveals the greatness of God's love. The cross reveals the greatness of God's love. John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a really important theological word. So if you're taking notes in your Bible, next to propitiation, write satisfaction of wrath. Because God is absolutely and perfectly holy, he must punish sin But what he's done is he's poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus, right? His wrath against our sin on a perfectly sinless sacrifice or substitute, that is Jesus. But he has to pour out wrath against sin because he is holy. Imagine if you heard of a judge who convicted criminals of crime, but then there was no sentence. He said, yes, you're guilty of the crime, but I don't believe in consequences. I'll just ignore that. No, that's not justice. And so what you have in the cross of Christ is this perfect intersection of the justice and holiness of God, but also his love in that he doesn't punish us for our own sins. He allows Jesus to take the punishment for our sins. So as Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love in this way, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were sinners, even when we were alienated and enemies, God shows his love by pouring out punishment on Christ. Or even more clearly, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins, not his own, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. One of my uh, friends and I were talking just this last week about the, the point of the cross and of the atonement of Christ. And one of the things that will be preached throughout Uh, hundreds of churches uh, next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, is that Jesus died just as an example. And he's just an example of how to live a sacrificial life. Now, follow his example and also go live a sacrificial life, which is true, we should imitate Jesus, but it misses the ultimate point of the cross, which is this. Your sin had to be punished, my sin had to be punished, so God punished your sin and my sin in Jesus. He was a sinless man. The only perfectly 
sinless man, the only perfectly sinless, innocent person who's ever lived. And God put the weight of his debt, or our debt, upon him. So that we wouldn't die, but we could be reconciled to God. And so this cross reveals the, the greatness and the power and the extent of God's love for us in not punishing us directly, but punishing us through a sacrifice, that is Jesus, a substitute, so that we could be redeemed. Right? We were alienated and we were separated, but now we can be bought back from slavery. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, a few of my favorite verses in the New Testament, says this, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, that is the blood of Christ. And that word redeemed means literally to, to buy out of. The image of that word that's behind that word is that of a slave who's standing on the auction block and another buyer steps forward and says, I will take that one for myself and pays the price. And Jesus buys us out of slavery to sin and death. We are redeemed. Now, let me, let me illustrate this for you. Um, as you, I've told you, I've used some cat illustrations before, and I'm going I'm to use another one, and it's, they're always a little bit uh, embarrassing and uh, shameful because, um, you know, I'm... I'm I just I don't, I don't like cats a lot, and I feel a little embarrassed that we own cats and possess cats. But I, this week I embraced my cat ownership because I realized I have gotten a lot of good illustrations out of the fact that we own cats. So this is a welcome thing. I'm I'm getting better with the fact that we uh, have owned and out, currently do own more than one cat. So um, I've, I've told the story many years ago, and I'm not uh, telling it just to bring shame on myself, but to make a point. Okay. Um, our cat, Tuxedo, uh, how Tuxedo got into our family goes like this. I, uh, my daughter uh, is a lover of all animals, absolutely all animals. We actually, we saw a goat running loose in our neighborhood this last week, and she said, Dad, can we have a goat? I mean, she just loves animals, and she's great with them. She's, you know, like an animal whisperer. So she's like, can I have a cat? I go, no. Um, you can never have a cat because I hate cats, and cats are inferior. I didn't actually say that to her, but I was thinking it, right? I don't, no, you can't have a cat. You can't have a cat. So we're going through this conversation constantly, and uh, Finally, I said, you can't have a cat, but look, I'll, I'll take you down to the shelter and you can pet and play with the cats. I know. You're like, God, it's really dumber than I thought. I know. I have no, I, I, I don't, I, even now, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking. Because, of course, we went down and we would play with the cats, and then she's sadder when I have, we, no, you can't have one of these cats you just fell in love with. And I did it, like, multiple times. I, I don't know. Anyway, one time we went down and, and we were playing with this little cat. It's black and white with a bobtail, a little tiny tail, and really cute little kitten. And she's playing in the room with it and enjoying it. It's a really cute cat. And then through the door, I heard another dad walk in, and I heard him say, through the door, he said, Do you still have that little black and white bobtail? I was like, You mean my cat? I was like, <laughs> So. <laughs> I, it wasn't for love of, of my daughter, who I do love deeply. It was just pure competitiveness. And so I bought the cat, and right, we get in the car, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what do I do? I've got to, I got to call Tristy head down, because if we just walk in with the cat. So I called her, and there's, you know, to, hey, guess where we are? I guess what I just did. Bought a cat, and just stunned silence on the other end, right? Complete silence. And I, I use that illustration just to say that what happened in that moment in that day is that we rescued that cat from slavery to another family. But which, 
another family which would not have loved that cat nearly like uh, my daughter and my son love that cat. Take care of that cat, right? It was a rescue. And you have been rescued from something much darker and more devious. You've been rescued from eternal separation from the living God. You've been rescued from the power of sin and death in your life. How? The precious, valuable, priceless blood of Jesus that most people disregard or dismiss or reject. But God has illuminated your heart and mind to understand that you are rescued. You are safe. You are no longer a slave, but you're a son and a daughter reconciled to God. Fifth point of the cross reconciles all who believe. Paul will say in Romans 5, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You're enemy, but what God does in the power of the cross is he makes enemies into friends. He makes enemies, in fact, into sons and daughters, as you will say, Paul will say in Galatians 3. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul isn't against daughters. His point is this. There's a particular son. He's called the firstborn son. And he gets the largest inheritance and the greatest privilege. And now all of you are sons, firstborn sons, with the highest privilege, reconciled to your heavenly father. But it's only available, notice he says, through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, this, this precious treasure at some point that you, you see sitting on the table there, I better run home and gather my money and make a purchase, right? There was a parable about that. Man found a treasure hidden in a field. And he realizes, you know, it's more valuable than absolutely everything I possess. So he goes home and he sells everything he possesses just so he can buy that field and have that treasure. That is, he reached out in faith and he received it. That reconciliation and the redemption is available when you believe. You must believe. God offers you a gift freely, but you have to reach out in faith and say, thank you. Thank you. And you have to recognize it's, it's not a, a function of, well, my good has now outweighed my bad. No, my bad has to be dealt with. It has to be removed. That debt has to be removed. It's removed in Christ, and now I can receive life, life that lasts forever. And so my question for you this morning is very simple. Do you believe? Do you believe that, that you have a debt of sin? It may not be as bad as the debt of the people around you or other people you, you've heard about. But it's a debt nonetheless, and you can't afford to pay it. Do you believe that Jesus is the one who's paid that debt for you? His death on the cross paid it, and his resurrection proved that you can have forgiveness in life. Do you believe that? And have you ever said to God, God, yes, I do, in fact, believe. Thank you for giving me life. If you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you this morning, it's the most important decision you can make, just to simply reach out and say, the precious treasure, Jesus, that you offer, I take it. Thank you. I'd also ask you, if you haven't made the decision, what's holding you back? If there's something holding you back, Please uh, talk with one of your friends. Maybe you came with a friend today or with a family member and you need to work through these things that are holding you back. Or come up and talk with me afterwards. But don't leave here without having considered that God is offering you freely the most precious treasure available. There's a sixth thing that the cross accomplishes and it's this. It destroys our adversary, the devil. It destroys the adversary, the devil. Men and women, we won't always have to battle. We won't always have to fight. Jesus uh, disarmed the rulers and authorities, we're told in Colossians chapter 2. In other words, when he was resurrected, apparently he, he did put his foot on Satan's neck. and says, you're done. 
I'm going to let you run around for a while, but you need to know you're conquered. My, my resurrection proves you're, you're done. And when we see the saints celebrating in the book of Revelation, what are they doing? We're vindicated. Our enemy has finally been destroyed. We won't battle forever. I don't want to battle forever. I don't know about you, but I don't want to fight forever. I want to have freedom from that constant struggle and battle and warfare. And that's what we hope for. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of superhero uh, movies and books and stuff. I always have been. I, I love it that I know quickly in the show who the hero is. And I know no matter what setbacks, and there'll be some setbacks there need, but, but the hero's going to win, right? I, I loved, uh, you know, Lone Ranger and, and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Flash. I mean, I, I like all of them. I love the movies that are coming out. I'm really more a Marvel fan than a DC fan, really, if truth be told. But I like all of them. I, I, I love them. But, you know, the one I didn't like recently was uh, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Right, um, and I'm not, this is no no need for spoiler alert because it's two years old. So if you haven't watched it, you're not going to watch it, and you're not really into this thing. So I'm just going to tell you that Superman dies in the end, right? And I'm, I'm watching the show, and, and I just go, nope, <laughs> nah. First of all, Batman can't beat Superman. I go, that's no way. This is totally unrealistic. It's not. But also, who has the right to kill Superman? Nobody has the right to do that. So I'm watching the show, going, the next show, Superman will be alive again. He has to. You can't kill, he's Superman. You can't kill Superman. He's, he's, he's the ultimate picture of the hero who overcomes. And so sure enough, what happens in the next movie? Superman's resurrected. Of course he is resurrected. You can't kill Superman. You can't keep him in the grave, right? Well, we know the story. We know the story. Jesus Christ is the ultimate hero. And you can't keep him in the grave. You, you can't. He has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and he will crush forever our enemy so we don't have to live in fear. We live in hope and confidence and joy because we have the one precious treasure, Jesus, who gives us life and power and strength forever. So this week, what I want you to do is I want you to, to take this list. There, there, are, there are many more. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, I, I had a few more that I didn't even share with you this morning, so you may want to go back. And pull up the slides and write down that list. And I want you just to celebrate the accomplishments of Christ. You may have more that you want to add to the list. What, are, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? Celebrate that. that that's what uh, this week of worship really allows for us to do, is to think deeply about what Jesus has done for us. So read through these, the narratives of the rejection of Jesus and his crucifixion. And contemplate and, and celebrate what God has done for you in Christ. But then second, share it. Right? It's, it's a precious treasure that's not for you to hoard or possess on your own. But if you know something that you have is that valuable, let's share it. Let's pray that God would give us courage and boldness to say to our friends and family, look, I, I have something that you need. And it's life. I, I, don't, I don't carry around shame and guilt and despair I have hope, even though I struggle, and I, and, I, and, I, and I do struggle, just like you do, but I know that I have life, and I have life in Jesus forever. Let's, let's share that, right? and let's pray that God would give us opportunities to share that. And if you haven't gotten around to the words of the gospel, man, invite that friend to come next week. Again, I, I will get to the gospel. Right? How can you miss it on Resurrection Sunday? We'll talk about that. But I want to encourage you through this week, pray for those friends, pray for those family members, and look for those opportunities and take them to share the treasure that you have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have life in Jesus Christ. I thank you that we have, we have hope and confidence and peace 
And Father, I pray for any who have come in this morning and they don't know Jesus yet. I pray that all the hesitation would fall down and be removed. And they would believe that your son died for them. I thank you, Father, that though we were born separated and alienated and enemies, you have made us friends and family. Through the work of Jesus, no no other work. Father, I pray that you give us boldness to share the name of Jesus with our friends and family who don't know him and proclaim that he is our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, God bless you. Remember next Friday, 630 uh, Southwood Campus. We'll have our Good Friday service.